you will grab your copy of God's Word this morning, we're going to turn open to the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 8. If you're using a pew Bible, it is there on page 288 and 289, 1 Kings chapter 8. I'm not going to read the whole passage this morning, we will revisit a little bit as we go through it. It'll be a little less of a expositional sermon that we'll use the text and kind of use it as a launching point for us as we finish up this sermon series on uh, worship according to the Word this summer. And then next week, we'll get back to the Gospel of Matthew and start walking through the Gospel of Matthew here in the fall. But let's pray before we open up the Word this morning. Our Father, we do pray that you would take your word and that you would sow it in our hearts this morning. We pray that you would teach us this morning to be those that draw near to you, even as you draw near to us. And for that to be the case, your spirit must attend to your word, attend to our hearts and attend to our minds and our souls. Pray in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Verses 22 through 26 this morning of 1 Kings chapter 8. This is the holy and errant word of God. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on the earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your son pays close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I once heard a story, it was a number of years ago, about an African church leader who was visiting the United States and he was taken on a tour of American churches and their worship services. And on his way back to the airport, they were dropping him off and the people were anxious to hear what he thought of the American evangelical church. And this African church leader responded, he said, I was surprised by how little you pray. That is a sad observation. I think it's probably a true observation. It's a sad observation because We gather as the church, and as we gather together as the church, we are to gather together in prayer. This is what God's people do when they gather to worship God in 
one very real sense we could say that our entire worship service is simply prayer. God speaks to us and we in response speak to Him. What I want us to see from this passage this morning, first this morning, is that when God's people gather gather together in worship, they pray. God's people gather together in worship, they pray. If we were to read all of 1 Kings 8, you would see that there is a word that is repeated over and over throughout the text, and it is the word assembly. Assembly, you see that in the first verse of this text. We read verse 22, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. 1 Kings 8, if you and I were to go back in this passage, it is that great text where Solomon has built the temple of the Lord, the people of Israel have been in the land, and yet there has been no temple. And David had to pass away so that his son, who did not have blood on his hands, could be the one that would build the temple, the temple where the Ark of the Covenant would be brought into, and it would be there that God would meet with His people in holy worship. And so here in 1 Kings 8, we have where the temple is inaugurated, where the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the temple. And as it is brought into the temple, we see this glory cloud of God descend upon the temple. And it so fills the temple that the priests have to run out of the temple. And Solomon's response is to pray. He has all the people gathered there, and God descends upon the temple, and Solomon's response is to pray. It's a beautiful picture of a beautiful God, a God who is not distant, who does not turn a deaf ear and a dumb mind and a blind eye to the cries of His people, but a God who hears, a God who draws near, a God who is imminent, who descends from the heaven in this glory cloud to dwell with His people because He hears them. It's a foreshadowing, isn't it? It's a a taste of what is to come as the second person of the triune God descends from the heavens and He takes to Himself a true human body and a true human soul. And then He is slain. And as He says, that temple which is, which is slain is raised up three days later. It is God come to dwell with His people because He hears their cries. He turns a listening ear. As God draws near by His Spirit, so Solomon and so we draw near to God by prayer. This is what God's people do. When the saints go to the temple, they pray. When the priests would go to the tabernacle, they would pray. When the Jews would go to the synagogue, they would pray. 
Jesus loudly and demonstrably echoes Isaiah 56 when he says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. As we'll see when we get to Matthew 21 later this semester. When the church gathers in Acts, what does it do? It prays. In Acts 2.42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. When Peter is released from prison and the church gathers together, it prays. When the apostles are appointing some for the diaconate, they set them apart to the diaconal work so that the apostles can appoint themselves or can devote themselves to the word and prayer. They pray. You could say that we assemble in a very real sense to pray. The word assembled here in 1 Kings 8 is used seven times. If we were to read through the whole chapter, you would see that this is the word that is over and over seven times in this chapter. Interestingly, in the Greek Septuagint, so in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which would have been the Old Testament that the Jews of Jesus' day would have read from, they would have read from the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, that word assemble is a word that many of you are familiar with. It's the word ecclesia. The word that's used in the New Testament, ecclesia, for church. The assembled ones, the, the called out ones. And we are assembled and we are called out to pray. This is what they do here. But second, notice that when God's people gather together in worship, they not only pray, but they pray together. Even as Jesus instructs the disciples in that model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, He says, Our Father. Every pronoun that speaks of us in the Lord's Prayer is plural. It is not singular. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's a corporate prayer. It's a prayer, the model prayer is a prayer that we pray together. We want to not only pray, but we gather to pray together. In fact, prayer is the heart of our worship together. The Word is the foundation, but prayer is the heart of worship. And so worship void of prayer is nonsensical. It would be like a cake without sugar. It ceases to be the very thing it purports to be. It would like, be like a beach without sand or like a sun without light. Worship services of God's people without prayer would have been inconceivable to those who worship God and went to the tabernacle or went to the temple or went to the synagogues or those who walked with Jesus or those who went to the house churches and acts. They would have had no category for worship services lacking or even void of prayer. They would have asked, well, what are you called out to do? What have you been gathered to do? 
God's people gather together in worship. They pray and they pray together. Third, I want you to see that when God's people gather together in worship, we not only pray, we not only pray together, we pray different prayers together. Now, we have been through a whole series earlier in this year. In the first part of this year, we did our faith focus on praying together, so I'm not going to go through why we pray or how we pray, but what I want you to understand this morning is that we have all kinds of different prayers throughout our given service here on a Sunday morning. All kinds of different prayers. And by that, I don't mean that some are long and some are short, or some are Puritan, and some are modern, or some are loud, and some are quiet, but, but different kinds of prayers. If you take your bulletin and you look at our order of worship, some of them are listed there. Some we don't list just for simplicity's sake. You'll see some listed there. You'll see that moment of silence under preparation. You'll see the prayer of adoration under the praise. You'll see the confession of sin under renewal, the congregational prayer under renewal. You'll see the prayer of illumination under the proclamation. you see the benediction under the response. All prayers. Even before the call to worship, we have our first prayer. We invoke God. We pray a prayer of invocation. We are invoking Him to, to meet with us, to, to bless us to stir in this room. And we see Solomon do that in verse 23. He says, O Lord, God of Israel, there is none like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. It's a recognition of who God is. And then he's calling upon him, invoking him. Verse 25, Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him. That is, bless us, Lord, as you promised to do. You are a covenant-keeping God. Bless us. Remember us. And so we have this moment of silence. So each of us individually can cry out to God before the service even starts. And we cry out collectively as we sit here in silence. Oh, Lord, bless us. Meet with us. Work in our midst. And then we often have a formal invocation that happens after the call of worship. We often have a prayer where usually John will lead us in that prayer. But our invocation should not begin at 9.15, and it shouldn't begin at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. You can serve yourself and you can serve this church well by asking God throughout the week to bless our upcoming Sunday services. Invoke Him. Bless us according to Your Word, by Your Spirit, O God. You know, right now, there are many that are invoking God on your behalf right now, down in the library. There's a group of people that are meeting during the 11 o'clock service to pray that God would meet with you right now during this hour. And there were some of you that did that during the 915 service. Maybe it's something more of you want to do. Go and pray for those that are worshiping in the service that you're not in. Maybe you can't do that every week. Maybe you can't do that, but we can all be praying all week long. God, meet with us on Sunday morning. Bless us. Just maybe, 
Just maybe the fact that we didn't, quote, get much out of this Sunday service was not because the preacher was off his game, or the music was subpar, or the fellowship was cold, but because we weren't preparing the soil all week long for God working. Just maybe. I dare guess that all of us would be more affected and more stirred and more caught up with the glory of what is occurring here if more of us were praying for that to occur. Prayer of invocation. We then have a prayer of adoration. When you encounter God, you adore Him. You give Him the praise that is due His name. Psalm 29. We recount who He is and what He has done. And so Solomon does here. In verse 23, there is no God like you keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. We remind ourselves out loud who God is and what God has done. Prayer of adoration. Prayer of thanksgiving. I tell you, the most content people in this world are people that have learned to pray prayers of adoration and thanksgiving often as a way of shaping the heart, as a way of molding the mind. Prayers of adoration. The next prayer we pray is a prayer of confession. We confess our sins. Solomon does the same in the presence of the people as they pray together throughout this passage. Maybe the most striking, though, I think, is in verses 46 through 53. He is praying for their future confession of sin. He says this, he says, If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and prayed to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you in all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who have carried them captive that they may have compassion on them. He prays for their prayers of confession. For most that come into our services, this is the strangest and oddest part of Reformed worship. Why are you confessing sin? Then don't you like the gospel? Aren't you gospel people? I've found in pastoring over the years that there are many that just find it downright offensive that there's a confession of sin in our services. The answer is yes. We love the gospel. It's actually because of the gospel and our love for the gospel that we confess our sins. We love the gospel, so there is this 
odd sense in which we should relish confessing our sins. We, we don't wallow in our sin. We don't enjoy it. We aren't proud of it. No, just the opposite. It's something we want to be far from. It grieves us. It is an enemy. But we relish confessing it because we love the gospel. The gospel is good news because we are sinners. No sin, no gospel. Not recognizing our sin while worshiping a holy God at the very least takes away from the proclamation of the gospel. We are this morning before a holy God. Holy God. And so it is right that we would confess our sins. As we confess our sins together, we have a weekly reminder that not only were we sinners in need of the gospel, but we are sinners in need of the gospel. A church that recognizes the depth of its sin is a church that is wading into the deep end of the gospel. Therefore, we aren't confessing our sins, we are missing one of the most important elements of coming before a holy God and worshiping. And it is also, we are missing one of the most glorious, beautiful, wonderful, all those words seem trite though, moments you and I can experience in because as we confess our sins, then immediately upon that, in our service, week in and week out, you hear the assurance of His pardoning grace. God thunders from heaven with His Word. And He says, not just that I forgive sins generally, but I have forgiven your sins. The sins you just confessed, the sins you committed this week, that you committed yesterday, that you committed this morning, that you committed in the pew today, and He assures you that you are forgiven, that that guilt is no longer yours to carry around if your faith is in Christ Jesus, that that burden is no longer yours. You've been set free. It should be a moment in the service if we weren't Presbyterians that we all jump up and holler and hoot. We need that reminder each week. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Prayers of confession and assurance. The next prayer is what has been called the pastoral prayer or the prayer of supplication or the prayer of intercession or in our bulletin we call it the congregational prayer or some of you call it the long prayer. And this is an extended prayer. It's to be long, 
Not so long that it is tedious or that it's laborious or that we're all falling asleep, but long enough that you say, that was long. Solomon prays a long prayer here, a prayer of intercession. Whereas the prayer of confession is by nature more subjective and it is introspective, the prayer of intercession is outward. And here we're praying for one another. We're praying for the church. We're praying for the world around us. We understand that one another need prayer. And so we're together in this room and we're praying for one another. We're united together. I'm praying for you. You're praying for me. We're praying for them. They're praying for us. We're praying together. I love being a pastor. Uh, I love it for a lot of reasons. Uh, One of them probably within the top three reasons is that uh, I get a front row seat to all kinds of wonderful spiritual things happening in the body of the church. I was told uh, a couple weeks ago I had strep throat and uh, I couldn't make it to the service and Kevin jumped right up into the pulpit, did a good job. Uh, But I was told that that was announced, and when that was announced, uh, one of our covenant children began crying and immediately started praying out loud for me that I would get well. Uh, That night uh, was a prayer meeting, and I was told he was at that prayer meeting, and at the prayer meeting, As we do sometimes at prayer meetings, we ask people to get in little groups. And so he was in a little group with a bunch of adults, and one of the adults was sharing a prayer request, and I guess this covenant child just jumped right in, cut her off, and began praying for me that I would get well. Now, I like that. I don't like it just because it's about me. I like it because here was a young soul that was burdened with the spirit of prayer for others. Others that he's united to in this community of faith. We could learn a lot from a child like that. Because some of us are good at praying, but we only pray for ourselves. To be praying for one another. Solomon is praying for others from verses 37 all the way to the end of the prayer. If we were to walk through this text, you would see that he's praying about famine or when pestilence or armies are bearing down upon the people in the land, that he's praying that God would bless his people. He's praying that when God's people turn to him, he would hear their prayers. He even goes so far as to pray for their prayers, that when they pray prayers in the future, that God would hear their prayers. He's praying for their praying. Paul will write to the Ephesians in chapter 6 of that letter, pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. James says in chapter 5 of his letter, pray for one another. Paul instructs Timothy, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So we pray for one another. We pray for one another's physical needs and one another's emotional needs and one another's mental needs and one another's spiritual needs. 
We pray for one another's families. We pray for each other's friends. We pray for each other's children, each other's jobs, each other's finances, each other's health. We pray for each other's enemies. We pray together. And he listens and he works. Prayers of intercession. Next, as we pray together different types of prayers, we often have a prayer for the giving of the offering. We've encountered God. We have given Him praise. We have then confessed our sins. We have heard the assurance of pardoning grace. And so we respond with a song of thanksgiving. And then we pray and we intercede for one another and then we give our offering, our tithes. It's a real element of our worship. It's a necessary piece of our worship. That you and I would respond to everything that He has given to us. And that we would respond by sacrificially giving a portion of that which He has given to us back to Him. And we pray for it. We pray that He would use it for His kingdom purposes and for His glory, for the good of the church. And that those treasures that we so badly want to hold on to all the time, that they would have less and less a grip upon our hearts. We pray. We pray that prayer of dedication or offering. We'll have a prayer of illumination before the Scripture text is read and preached because it does not matter what is read and it does not matter what comes out of the preacher's mouth if the Spirit is not working in this room. It all falls on deaf ears. It all falls, falls on hard hearts. And so we pray that the Spirit would work before we read the word and before we preach it. We always close the sermon with a prayer of application, for the Spirit must apply what was preached in this room and what was read. And so it's another just simple, brief prayer asking for His blessing, a prayer of application. And then our services close with a benediction, just as Solomon did here in 1 Kings 8, 54 through 61. He gives a benediction to the people. And this is one of the oldest Elements and the worship of God's people. At least going back to number six and that Arianic benediction, which we often quote. Now, this is not simply a, a prayer of the pastor for the congregation, it is much more than that. It is rather a benediction, it is a covenantal blessing, it is the blessing that Abraham gave to Jacob, gave to Isaac, and Isaac gave to Jacob, and Jacob gave to his sons, and on down through the generations. It's a pronouncement of that blessing upon God's people, that you stand in that long line of God's covenant people, and He has always kept His covenant, and you are in that line, and as they were blessed, so you are blessed. As they were given to, so you will be given to. As they prospered in the Lord, so you will prosper in the Lord. As He was faithful to them, so He will be faithful to you. As He kept them, so He will keep you. And you are blessed as you go out into the world. It's a benediction. And all we do is simply receive it. When God's people gather together in worship, we pray. Second, when we gather, we not only pray, but we pray together. 
And when God's people pray together, they pray different prayers together. I pray that we would be a praying church. And we would continue to grow. This is a praying church, and that is one of the greatest blessings of it. I, I pray, though, that we would continue to grow more and more so as a praying church. It often feels like prayer is simply transitional in nature and preparatory before the great work of the reading of the Word and the preaching of the Word or the singing of a song, but prayer is not preparation for the great work in worship. It is the work. So you need to be praying. You need to be praying throughout the service. You say, well, I don't know how to pray. Well, my friends, you're in the academy right here. This is a worship service, but it's also a training facility. And as a pastor or an elder gets up here and prays, you are to listen and you are to engage and you're to be praying along with him because you and I are being instructed in prayer. As we unite together in prayer here week in and week out, we learn to pray as we listen to others pray. Struggling in prayer is no shame. Prayerlessness is. And so you'd be praying along with the elder or the pastor who is praying up front. You say, but I, my mind wanders. I, I can't keep focus for that long. Well, join the club. It's a little trick that I do that I think is helpful. Is that someone is praying a long prayer or praying a prayer out loud that you're joining in, then you just keep saying in your mind, I agree, I agree, I agree. Or the biblical language, Amen. Amen, amen, verily, truly, I agree. And when your mind begins to drift and all of a sudden you realize, oh, I was thinking about the pizza I'm going to have for lunch. And you realize that, then you get right back on track. Ah, back to the prayer. And you pray along. Prayer is much more caught, is just as much caught as taught. And in these prayers, you hear structure and the tone and the words and the theology and items that rise to importance and manner and application of the word. But can I say, it's not just the formal prayers that you're to engage in when you're in worship. There should be all kinds of little prayers that are popping up all over the place. It should be like a little whack-a-mole room where there's just prayers just popping up all over the place. That all of a sudden you're convicted of sin by something that was read or something you sung or something that was preached. And immediately you just offer a quick confession of sin before the Lord. That something strikes you in a song as you're singing it about, oh, that is so beautiful about God. And so you immediately give him thanksgiving. That you see someone else in the room. They come across your eyes. And so you offer a quick supplication for them. That as the preacher is preaching, that you pray for him. There'll be all kinds of little prayers that are going all over this room all the time as we join together in prayer. The church is a praying people. This is what we do because this is who we are. We are children of the Father who is in heaven. And so we speak to our Father in heaven by praying. Fill our services with praying the word and according to the word. 
I want to close the sermon today just with a kind of wrap-up of what we've done this summer. So if you think back over these summer weeks as we've been looking at at worship, we, we've entitled it Worship According to the Word. Well, why do we worship the way that we worship? Well, we're seeking to worship according to the Word. And as we've articulated that, we've said, well, it's it's best articulated this way. We read the Word, we preach the Word, we sing the Word, we confess the Word, we see the Word in the sacraments, and we pray the Word. We are a Word-centered people. That's what we are. Because God chooses to work by His Word. That's how He chooses to save. That's how He chooses to sanctify. And that's how He will keep us to the end. By His Word. Other things can seem more pragmatic or more alluring. I understand a visitor coming into the church not familiar with the Word will find a lot of this strange. And so there is this this pull that happens in the church to say, well, let's minimize then how much we pray the Word or how much we read the Word or how much we sing the Word or how much we talk about this Word. Let's do some things that are a little more welcoming. I'll just close with this. I was recently reading a story in the New York Times, a delightful story a month or so ago about the most famous rooster in France. His name is Maurice. And Maurice lives on an island off the west coast of France. And it's an island that has about 22,000 people that live upon it. But all of a sudden what happens during the summer is that that population will skyrocket 20-fold. Because there's all kinds of people over the last 10 or so years that live in major metropolitan French cities that have decided that that island is a good place to get away from all the hustle and bustle of city life. And so they go to this island for a few weeks each summer. So Maurice, he is a regular kind of rooster. He gets up each morning, he stretches his legs, and he puffs his white feathers out, and he throws back his head, and he lets loose a big old cockle-doo-doo-doo. He knows his place in God's created order. But some of his neighbors don't like his place in God's created order. So he's got two neighbors, poor Maurice that are city dwellers that have bought houses on the island. And they are now suing Maurice and his owner because they want a judge to kick Maurice out of the area or even worse, what happens to chickens. The very thing they are seeking, they want to kill. They find the island too rural. island, a respite from the world, 
is not made more palatable by becoming more like the world. My friends, the church is best at being the church. And the church is built upon the foundations of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. We are word people. God has always accomplished His purposes by His Word. And so we stick close to His Word. We stand upon His Word. If He is going to seek and save any in our generation, it is going to be based upon the Word. And if He is going to bring us home to glory, it is going to be because of the Word. So we are Word people, unashamedly. Together. And we will keep worshiping by God's grace according to His Word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that You are a God of salvation. We are thankful that You have given us Your Word. We're thankful as well that You have given us the gift of prayer. And oh, Father, we would be more and more a people of prayer. We all have room to grow in this realm, so teach us to pray. And we pray that our services would be filled with prayers, that we would be a people that are praying throughout the hour, seeking you, glorifying you, and benefiting one another. For your glory and our good. In Christ's name we pray, amen.